How you doing, Eris? You hey, Joe, day? thank you so much for having me on your show. Where are you calling from? Calling from uh, East Bay, uh, Lafayette, California. And uh, okay. you're in, uh, where are you now, Eris? I'm in Fresno. On Fresno, of course. Of course you are. And uh, we're talking about six years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we, we're going to, we're here to talk about your, your new novel, your hit novel, um, Waiting for Lipschitz at the Chateau Marmont, and uh, it's a terrific read. Uh, I, I got to say, there's a lot happens in, seven, in 175 pages in the not much happens department. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of waiting, but there's, there's a kind of density of... Uh, feeling and uh, passage of time uh, it's really a quite a trick you pulled off i think to to have us be attentive to the inner uh dynamics of uh everybody on on, on the scene here so that was beautifully done and, and i think the sentences are uh they reward rereading i found over and over again and and that, well, thank you so much yeah, it was, a, it was a treat. It was beautiful. Physically, it's a beautiful book too. That's uh, just gorgeous. And you know, so for me, I'm not in the industry, but I love the term "the industry." <laughs> There's some, yeah. you, you you go to town on it, uh, and there are uh, you know many many funny turns here, and many along with many sad turns in, in your novel, but. Uh, why don't you talk about the industry? What that? Uh, what is it about that image that is so? I don't know. Compelling and disturbing at the same time. Well, um, again, thank you so for your high praise for the book. I think that um, it's very satisfying when another writer gets a hold of your book and appreciate it appreciates it for the nuances that you hope they'd appreciate it for. Um, many readers just go after stories. They want to see a kind of a satisfying plot and things unpacking and in novel, uh, but still predictable ways. And as you kind of alluded, this book really is, doesn't have that structure. It's more of a, you know, turn the, turn the, uh, gas on, put the pedal all the way to the floorboard and see where we're at 175 pages later. Um, so thank you so much for that uh, opening. Well, it's kind um, of a screed, and at the same time, it's a kind of a, it's a prose poem, uh, which I found fascinating uh, that you could sustain that voice and that intensity throughout. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, the force of the industry and but more than that is the yearning and the pain of 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 the narrator and uh yeah which is i think the essence as far as i know of hollywood it's about yearning and it's about yeah. suffering yeah it i think that the narrator um to step back just a second from your question about the industry i should uh, note that I was never in the industry either. Mm-hmm. Though I lived, though I lived in Hollywood, um, and really in Hollywood 
for in more or less the same neighborhood for 20 some odd years, 27 years. Um, I somehow skirted the industry. I had, you know, I wrote screenplays like almost everybody does there and, and had uh, one of my books optioned and others pitched. Um, but I never really got deep into it and ever imagined I'd make a living at it. But I knew many people, if not the majority of the people I knew, who were part of the industry. And that goes from sound editors to directors to actors to producers, you know, the whole gamut of them, even, you know, people in the legal departments. And so I was surrounded by, um, you know, people who made their living and um, invested their lives in something that was so dynamic, um, uh, interesting, and perplexing, uh, particularly um, as the industry began to change. Um, studios were quote unquote outsourcing a lot of their a lot of their needs um, they were shooting uh, all over the country and not in Hollywood and even into Canada so I watched many of my friends um, you know suffer through these contortions of the industry so that the industry itself can survive and make more and more and more money so um, my that this book was really uh, um, a kind of putting to rest the uh, the um, feelings I had watching my friends uh, mm-hmm. uh, thrive and and collapse under its weight. Um, so, so you're you, you and well that that's that's very helpful to know. Uh, so you have your protagonist as you uh, you know who has a, whose story is going from riches to rags, okay. Um, but the, the, the deterioration, the, in, the inner struggle, the tribulation of this fellow is, is I think, what you can, it, it's, it's uh, you just said it. It's about, you have the sense that there's a character here, a person who is struggling with forces beyond their control and, and these, of the industry. And but at the same time, your your guy is full of this wicked uh, humor about it and sarcasm and cynicism. That's not the final. I mean, this is the other trick you have. For all of his cynical expressions, there's a kind of I wouldn't call it wholesome. There's no. I mean, I hate I hate this, this as you said earlier in the when we we're talking. I hate the. Uh, the appeal to for sympathetic characters. I mean, as if that's what we read for completely. That is, I think we want to challenge our, our, our readers all the time to understand the complexity of any human being and to be uh, simplistically sympathetic to somebody is, you know, not, not the goal. And your guy is not, uh, is sympathetic and not sympathetic at the same time. I mean, he is he is enthralled to images of, uh, of himself and of L.A., the world, and for that matter, of Fresno. And he is yeah. he's he's throwing everything. He's trying to. He can't balance everything. This is the amazing thing. He's just 
he can't balance anything. But yeah. the, strength, yeah. the strength of his narrative is that he's going to keep telling this freaking story. He's going to be there <laughs> waiting for Lipschitz at this, you know, castle called the Chateau Malmo. It's amazing. So here we are with him and saying, what are you doing here, man? You know he's not showing up. What are you doing here? And he can't stop himself. Yeah. And he can't go anywhere else. He can't go to Fresno. Hirschman, you know, he's a ghost. He's a, yeah. and, uh, a, a his doppelganger. He's a, it's an amazing image. It's a tremendous image. Well, you know, I think that that, I'd like to think that that reflects um, where a lot of people in contemporary society are. Um, I wrote this book, you know, as a, uh, set in Hollywood and then set in Fresno. So there's a dialogue between the two cities and particularly between Chateau Marmont and Forestier Underground Gardens right. uh, here in Fresno. Another fantastic image, yeah. And those two enter into a dialogue. The two cities enter into a dialogue. And you would never think they'd be dialoguing because one is so much more impoverished than the other. But they do. Mm-hmm. And the character, like many people, I think, is waiting to waiting to um, to be saved. Um, it's a contemporary version of Godot's, you know, waiting for God to show up. Right. That was very heavily in on my mind. You know, when Beckett was writing. God was dying, if not dead. There was a tremendous um, vacuum left in God's wake that uh, people were trying to fill. And I think Beckett probes that condition. But since then, for the most part, we've conceded that God is dead for all practical purposes, not maybe for mystical purposes. And um, yet we continue to to search um, for something to save us, in this case, from our, you know, from our own egos um, that are swallowing us up. Yeah, well, that's, so, I mean, there's this whole back to the garden fantasy that's operating here in Fresno. Yes. This idealization, the idyll that's uh, Fresno. And... I mean, one of some of the most wonderful stuff in your book has to do with your description of fruit and vegetables. I mean, the yeah. incorporation of the world, I mean, the flavors of the world uh, are, are transcendently uh, pictured for us and we feel them. So you know that there are consolations in this kind of world or uh, even while you're waiting, waiting in a godless world, waiting for Godot anyway, and, and, and you're also, I mean, there's lots of, there are many voices here in your novel, uh, yeah. overtones, I guess you would say, you know, you got the Beckett, you got the Dostoevsky. Um, I, I would have to do a spoiler alert to tell you where I think it's on the last page, what the major influence is. I'm almost tempted to say it, but I'll, maybe I'll talk about it some other time. But the what you do by the end of your novel is to reverse a whole epic tradition here and it's it's the front page of it's the first page of ulysses in reverse by the time you yeah. get to the end of that novel 
uh, which I oh, thought was sure. that was fascinating. So you're so he's Buck Mulligan yeah. too. Uh, yes, you're right. You're a smart reader, Joe. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's there's a, there's a no. I mean, I I say that with great um, thanks, gratefulness. Um, yeah, there's you know there's a very very powerful uh, biblical theme to the book. Right. There's a lot of allusions allusions to the Bible and to religion. Maybe maybe not the Bible so much as religion. Um, I feel that um, people to to casually assume that they are have gotten rid of uh, religious thinking um, in their lives just because they don't go to church or quote unquote believe in God. But I've always been quite fascinated how how religious thinking or we, some people call it magical thinking, you know. Um, um, exists and continues to exist, perhaps just because of the structure of our minds. And um, I that I weave that kind of hopefulness and faith into the book. And it, you're right; it ends with a a passage out of the Catholic ritual. Um, um, and has a very strange, I think, um, sense of the beyond that it's pointing to, but yet the beyond is not that beyond. It's, well, it's, and, and, it's and the Latin, the Latin that you invoke is is a, is a call to celebration. And that is true. when you when your guy is leaving uh, the the hotel. You know, there's a there's a moment of freedom and celebration that is absolutely terrifying. Um, so you know that. I mean, to, let's take a step to the side here. So here you are, a novelist. You're not a screenwriter. Um, you understand the screenwriting world. Um, you, as a novelist, who are you writing for? Is it? Um, I mean, you're also a psychologist, so. We know what uh, psychologists have said about the motivations of artists, and it turns out there's the exact same motivations as bookmakers and uh, criminals and uh, every other <laughs> form of human being. We're all desiring something beyond ourselves. Um, so, what what drives you as a as a writer of, you know, for, for, you know, Randall Jarrell said, uh, uh, define the novel. A novel is a piece of fiction of some length with which something is wrong. And I, I would love to, there's, there's no, there's no <laughs> such thing as a perfect novel. There's no such thing as a perfect, it can't be a perfect seamless experience. It can't be. Uh, and yeah. I'm, my, my most recent book is a memoir. And my definition yeah. of a memoir is a piece of nonfiction of a certain length in which something is wrong with the author. So, and I and I I'm not so sure that there's a continuum between you know fiction. I mean, the memoir and a novel. People think, well, memoir novels are autobiographical sometimes, and memoirs are fictive. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, they're both prose, I guess. But I, if I had if I had a lot of time, I could probably ex- explain in my mind. I think a memoir is much more much more closely related to a poem. 
than it yeah. is to uh, to a narrative nonfiction. But anyway, going back to going back to uh, r- religious inclinations and and, and uh, desire for an audience, a desire to be read. Uh, I mean, your guy wants what? It's hard to know. Do you want money? Do you want fame? Does he want the little gold statue? Does he want to get laid? I mean, I mean, all those things are at play. Does he want a new car? Yeah. Does he want a new address? Does he want, uh, you know, uh, some delicious uh, Thai basil? I mean, does he want Bershman back in his life? I mean, or is he trying to resolve his relationship with his mom or his dad? Yeah. Uh, I mean, all these things are at play. But as a novelist, I mean, what drives you? What gets you going? when you're writing? Well, um, you know, I think if you don't mind my book, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm very uh, happy with the questions because they're not easy ones to answer. Um, and they make me think and maybe get me to speculate. I think you, you've written enough to know that, you know, each book comes with a different kind of energy and, and in a way drive. Um, this is my fifth book, my fourth novel, and um, I don't know exactly what um, drove me to write this book, except that I had a lot of feelings, and I'd lived and had such a love affair with Los Angeles for so long, um, and seen the suffering of a lot of my friends that I felt I needed to get it out. And um, I wrote this book in the most unconventional way for myself. Um, I just began writing sentences and laughing, laughing as I was writing sometimes so hard that I had to like call, call a friend to read it to just to share in the fun of it. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think, I wanted to express the pain of a certain kind of Hollywood ego that is very astute, works hard, drives himself in this case. Um, But in the end, there is a emptiness. And maybe, maybe that emptiness to me um, reflected the human condition, even though it occurs in this very sexy place. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that ultimately as writers, that's what we are hoping to do is not to just shed light on our story or even our character stories, but to illuminate for a moment, the human condition and give people the license to see themselves without falling apart. And I think that, um, so there's a, there's at once a challenge to the structure of our perceptions and at the same time, a redemption through the sheer will, um, in artistry of the writer. Right. I mean, that's why uh, one of the first things I said today was that what I love were the sentences. The, uh, I mean, the, the thing is, 
we all know as writers that when you sit down to write, you're not writing a book, you're writing a sentence. <laughs> you're writing a word. Yeah, sure. You're writing, you know, you're cre- creating an image. You're moving. Eventually, it begins to cohere, if, if you're lucky, over time. And a, a, a book of a certain dimension, a certain length, becomes a story. It becomes, but it's, but it's a work of the imagination. It's a kind of a work of, uh, I mean, you're an arch, you're familiar with architecture too. I mean, it's a build, it's a work of building. You're building something. You're creating something out of out of nothing. Uh, and that is what's fascinating with any great character, and your guy is a pretty great character, is that the reader buys in and the reader has to actually make decisions along the way you know my it you feel you feel there's a poignancy to to the narration but you you step in why is this who is this guy what is driving him how is he and it and it parallels i mean you're in your critical you're saying come on grow up change you know do something different you know this isn't working or you know Suck it up, you know. Yeah. You chose this life. This is the life you've chosen, as yeah. Michael Corleone said. Uh, what are you yeah. going to do? Um, and you, but there's a what's what powerful here, and I think this is the power of uh, of any kind of vocation related to the arts. Is finally, it's its own justification, and we know that this guy can't do anything else. This is his world, and he's gonna he's gonna move through it at the pace that he's going to move through it. There's no Oprah to save him. He's not going to take up Pilates. He's not going to do yoga. (laughs) None of that stuff is going to happen to him. He's not going to take up uh, traditional religion, although maybe he's a little bit tangy, like that church visit was moving to him. But he's going to struggle. And maybe that's finally here, uh, the story is that every artist is a kind of struggle is in a struggle and yeah. it's a battle it's a great battle but it's a joyous battle too which is you know the biblical stuff you were you were talking about those the prophets and and, and the bible are are they're they're warriors they're joyous they're dangerous you wouldn't want to fuck with them uh, uh and, yeah and you don't want to fuck with a with a good novelist well you know yeah we read doisevsky you mentioned him earlier obviously he's a kind of uh uh, you know, notes from the underground is a parallel right. to this book. Um, very and, funny book. Um, notes from underground. Very funny. Yeah, very funny. Very funny. And I don't. There's a certain kind of. I don't know the humor. Um, I don't know if there's anything irony and cynicism, but there because of the in notes in notes in the underground's case. There's such a transparency and authenticity to the narrator that um, he's almost laughing at himself at the same time that he's, you know, uh, impaling himself. And right, right. You know, in a, in a, in, a, in your book, what I I just want to point this out before we we finish up today. You know, one, my favorite moment was a very uh, a very subtle move you made here. I mean, you're, you have lots of spectacular uh, sentences and pyrotechnics are, are lovely, and but the, you go through <laughs> you have this long riff about your the agent and about calls and not getting your calls returned and uh, and and there's this moment here uh, where 
uh, you, where the protagonist is really like, well, I'm not going to get my calls returned. And what an embarrassment. You're right. You're right. They kept calling me just that I kept calling others until I was forced more or less to say, look, why don't I call you when I hear something? And here was my French onion soup. I love that. If I could figure out what that is, I would steal it because I love that transition. <laughs> that was so subtle and like, okay, we're now down to the damn soup. And the soup is probably delicious. And it, it, it brings back, it echoes all the stuff earlier about the, the squash and everything in, in, in your novel. But I mean, just the, 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 the contrast between this, desire, this put this feeling of rejection and then the soup shows up, and it's a, it's, a, it's a moment of triumph, a moment of loss. I love that. That was, that was fun. That was very fun to read. Well, there's a lot of, because it's one, one sentence, essentially, yeah. the book. Yeah, it's right out um, of Marquez. I could feel it, yeah. It, it, was very, um, it was very challenging to uh, do it. I mean, the transitions had to be somehow subconscious um, because I didn't have any paragraph breaks. I don't know. I think that when Tyson edited it, he has some small breaks, but the first draft of it, there was no breaks at all. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was very little punctu- punctuation to the chagrin of the editors over there at AJ. <laughs> um, um, it was uh, very few commas in it. And it was, I wouldn't say stream of consciousness because it was more structured than that. But I knew that if I wanted to write a book like this without the, um, without the uh, props of page breaks and punctuation breaks, that I had to make the transitions very deft. And I had to, I had to have the energy um, never really falter. Um, which is one of the reasons I chose to make it a short book <laughs> because mm-hmm. I don't know if I could, I don't know if a reader could take it any longer than it, it was. Uh, like, as you mentioned, it is a short book, but it's, you know, it's kind of unrelenting. Un, un, mm-hmm. So some of those trans, transitions were just to, um, to uh, heighten the irony. Um, yeah. And the, the, yeah, to, the transition to French onion soup was precisely that. Yeah, it was. It was beautiful. And and you know every every good novel, I bet every interesting novel, every interesting piece of work, there's a backstory of how the book got written. In my in my uh, latest memoir, I, uh, The Pope of Brooklyn, I uh, I tell a story about how Subway to California, my previous memoir, uh, took shape. And when Subway to California was first written, it's not coming out on paper, same time as Pope is. Um, and Harris, you and I have the same publisher, Rare Bird, of course, the distinguished yeah. Tyson Cornell, the impresario. Uh, anyway, so when I, when I was writing Subway to California over the years, it was, uh, it was a story of my time as a, uh, a teacher, a time as a professional gambler, my life in a Catholic monastery, my uh, tics and foibles and... Uh, and a lot of death and criminality and drug addiction. That was my story that I was telling in uh, Subway to California. And, I, and I, somewhere in the middle of that novel, into uh, that memoir, I was I found myself um, deciding to write uh, in the third person about myself. So I 
and it was it was all set for publication and everything with McAdam Cage now defunct. So there was alternating passages between the first person and the third person. And now that sounds insane. And and it but it liberated me to write the damn thing. Uh, because by not mm-hmm. writing consciously about myself, I was writing more freely about myself, my memory awake, and I finished the book. It was all set for publication. And then I was working with uh, my editor, on, uh, and, and I heard something in his voice that he asked me a question. It was too gentle, the question that occurred to me, just as we're all set for publication. Mm-hmm. He said, and I said to myself, I have to think this through. I slept on it, and I woke up, and I decided... I would rewrite the entire thing in the first person. And Mm. I did in the next four weeks. So it was completely rewritten. Uh, But that was the story. I I, I wrote it by writing about myself in the third person. But then it was as I began to face the fact that I was dealing now with an audit, with a reader, it was my decision that this was really, uh, oh yeah, it helped me write the book, but who the hell cares? That doesn't matter. It's now, how does this get presented to the reader? So, um, yeah, the pleasures, the pleasures of there's the pleasures of reading are unrelated to the pleasures of writing. The, uh, I mean, it's hard work, <laughs> you know, you know, you show yeah, up, you know, every sentence is a battle. Some days, some days are good days, you know, some hours are good. And we, uh, you, but you could tell that in your novel, you were having fun and, and it was a sad story right. and you, and you're having fun. And that finally, I think, translates for the reader. And, we, and, and it's my hope as a writer all the time. Well, yeah, my, my struggles here, you know, they're self-chosen, self-selected. Uh, they don't need, my reader doesn't need to go through that struggle. It's up to me to make that struggle uh, palatable for, for the reader. Anyway, you did that. It's a supremely palatable novel. It was fun to read. Well, uh, I think second, I think the second time through was even easier. It was easier to read the second time through. I'll tell you, for me. Well, I'm glad you got to. You know, the book the book has not been very. Uh, it's still really only been reviewed once, which is the first time that's ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure what's going, what's going on in the review world. I know that a lot of things are shrinking in print reviews, but even online reviews. Um, and the one review was very uh, uh, distressed by my narrator and by extension me um, as he felt that the book was very racist. The narrator was racist and self-involved. And, um, you mean the sub-white, funny stuff, how the, he, the sub-white stuff irritated the reviewer? Yeah. Was that it? Yeah. Yeah. Sub- yeah that stuff. Um, and, um, you know, I didn't know how far I can take this, but I, I think that there's a subconscious, you know, uh, cons- fear that people have, and also uh, um, behavior towards people who are not white, that is um, implicit in a lot of what goes on in these super liberal enclaves like Hollywood. And it was important for me to go after that. In fact, I kept telling myself as I was writing the book, you know, what haven't you covered? What, what hypocrisy and irony have you not, you know, unearthed here? 
Mm-hmm. And um, so that was that was a difficult. Those were difficult passages to write for me. Yeah, um, I felt they were funny, but they were not easy. But I think I had to do that. I think mm-hmm. it cost me some readers and definitely some critics. But I guess that's the price you pay for just doing what you think you need to do. Right. Uh, I don't know if you had any, it becomes, any observation. Yeah, it becomes an act of, yeah, it, there's, a, there's a kind of bravery here, courage to face up to your own internal uh, struggles with, with these. I mean, we live in an essentialist age again, and identity politics rule. And uh, we have, um, you know, a lot to work out publicly and culturally. Um, but you've, yeah. you've given, in a way, you know, the ultimate alternative fact to our experience in this very jaded time we live in. And the alternative fact you're, you're proposing is that, you know, a story, this is a story you need to read. This is a character you need to embrace, you need to deal with. So I congratulate you on your achievement. Uh, and, and, Thank uh, you so much. I hope, I hope uh, nothing but good things for your book. And I always wanted to say Thank the you. next thing. And when, and when is your... When is your book being released? Uh, curious. The Pope. So in 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 um, on March 14th, the Pope of Brooklyn comes out. It's a beautiful book uh, that the Tyson and others designed, Alice. And at the same time, I have a new book of poems coming out on the same day. Sightlines from the cheap seats. Oh, really? What? And uh, nice. that's Rare Birds doing that too. And then uh, Subway to California is coming out in paper, I think, on the same day. So March 14th. Oh my God! So I try that. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I guess it's my 11th book, 12th book. I can't. I lose track. Uh, but I'm excited. Um, we'll see. Maybe maybe somebody will read it. We're hoping. Uh, I hope you read it. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely uh, will read it. I did get some of it, and I found it a really compelling and heartfelt story. And I think I read into 45 pages before my eyes gave. So I look forward to getting a hard copy of the book. That's great. Well, let's continue the conversation another time, but uh, maybe we can uh, leave it there for now. How about that? That sounds like oh, the industry thank speaking, you so doesn't much. it? <laughs> yeah. It does. Thank you so much for your time and your uh, thoughtfulness. I do appreciate it. All right. All right, Eris, good talking to you, and uh, we'll uh, catch you at the Chateau sometime.